Welcome to Where Wine Takes You, where we celebrate wine, the people who make it, the stories behind it, with a special and unique focus on the Paso Robles Wine Country region because, well, it's undeniable that the wine, the people, and the stories from this region are the most exciting around of late, and I am thrilled that you're here. I'm your host, Adam Montiel, and we've got a great show today. We have asked before, and I love this question to winemakers because you always get a unique answer. And that is if winemaking is an art or is it craft? We've had different iterations of this answer before, and we've even heard some winemakers go back and forth in respectful disagreement. Remember the conversation with Stefan from La Ventura and Guillaume of Close Lynn chatting on this. It was fantastic. It was fascinating. Today, we're going to get down to the philosophy behind winemaking, ideas and concepts that don't always have fundamentals and the numbers behind them. But methods that can result in, you know, feeling, subjective definitions of connecting to the grapes, the vines, the barrels in the process, and how all that makes sense, and sometimes doesn't. These are some of the more fascinating aspects to chat within the space of wine, at least for me. It requires an adventurous mind. It requires a vibrant personality. So to have not one, but two of those on the show today, we are in for a treat. Now, don't forget to share this podcast with at least one person if you can. And if you wouldn't mind rating, reviewing, and subscribing to this podcast, it would mean so much and continue to lift this podcast up. I mean, consider we have at least 500,000 podcasts floating around above us. That's right, like a half a million. And to think that last week we were within two chart positions from what's considered the number one wine podcast, the Wine Enthusiast podcast. It's unreal. I was looking at the chart and we were like number 47 with an upward motion and the wine enthusiast was like 45 and moving down. And I just couldn't even, I couldn't even believe it. And I believe that's because of these amazing owners, these growers and winemakers willing to share so openly. And really because of you, we have something special here on this show. Got a cool text from uh, Bill Armstrong who owns Epic Estate Wines. He didn't have my number, but he got it from someone else. And I see this text come up in my, you know, unfamiliar folder and he mentioned how into the podcast he is and how he likes going back to hear all the episodes almost like he's binging on it you know like we do with our streaming services i thought that was such a cool compliment and and we've had some great conversations in the last year some of the biggest names in the game in paso wine country these conversations they're just as good as they were i mean what we're about a year in they're just as good as they were say a year ago eight months ago so if you are new please take bill's advice and check out some of those past shows because some really, really good stuff in there. And thanks, Bill, for that text. It makes me so happy you're enjoying the podcast the way you are. And to those who reach out to me on Instagram or write a review on Apple Podcasts, which I appreciate more than you know, a very sincere thanks to you. You make my day when you extend yourself like that. So thank you. We've got a good contingency of Paso folks, both in and out of the industry, that are feeling the show, as well as some folks who are just itching to make that next trip to visit Paso. Two great reviews I'll share. They're quick. One from Mitch, who works at Donati Family Wines. They're on the 46 West and Vineyard by that new traffic circle on the west side. Mitch says, Adam does a great job at capturing the essence of Paso Robles wine country. Great compliment, my man. Thank you so much, Mitch, especially from a dude who has been in the game and knows his stuff like you do. Also love this one. Review titled Smooth Listening. Can't wait to get down to Paso and see where wine takes me. Easy to get lost in the show while listening to the silky smooth voice of host Adam Montiel. 
Damn, I like that. Well, listening, I feel like I'm actually there. Cheers. And that part is really one of the best compliments. When you can feel like you're actually with us, that is the idea. It's like you get it. This from PRN Meds. Well, PRN Meds, I'm glad you like the smoothness of this podcast. I'm glad you feel like you're right here with us. You are. Maybe I should take this voice and start another wine podcast like Paso Wine After Dark. Paso Wine Missed Connections. Can you imagine? Yeah, can you imagine? Like the Missed Connections. Craigslist? I've been watching you for so very long. I was tasting that York Mountain Grenache, and you were drinking that 2014 Ingenuity. You were wearing that sundress and the hat that said Free Britney. I asked if you were a wine club member. You told me you were just visiting for your first time. Well, guess what, baby? I'm a member. Oh, yeah. And I'll be coming back for their release party next month. Let me know if you want to come kick it with me and be my plus one. Damn. Ah! But imagine. Harvest Wine Weekend, honey. Just around the corner. Things go well. I can see it's getting a little Paso Airbnb. Come on, come on, come on. That's how it could go down, though. That's how it could go down, though. Okay, okay enough with uh, the Jodeci music. I do like it, though. Okay, what else? Uh, we're going to debut a little nugget called the Travel Paso Spotlight after our conversation coming up. Now, obviously, the wine country is what we hang our hat on here, our hat that apparently says Free Britney on it. But there are so many other reasons to come to Paso as far as accommodations. The culinary benchmark has been raised. The food is great. Craft cocktails, boutique producers of an innumerable amount of cool stuff. So we are linking up with our friends at Travel Paso for what we are creatively calling our Travel Paso Spotlight. I'm looking forward to it. Going to take you to the Paso Market Walk today. So that will be fun. But I got to get to this conversation because I am so, so excited to share it with you. One of the old school legends of Paso wine is John Munch. One of those names that all the greats have seemed to cross paths with. La Cuvier is the name of his brand. And John is such a treat to have conversation with. It's one of those you want it to go on for hours and hours and have bottles and bottles more wine. It's just such great convo. Uh, with John, another guest I have not met before. So a little nervous and a lot of excitement for us both together to meet Ishka Stanislas of Gaiamar Wine Cellars. He is a farmer, and the majority of his grapes go to John Munch at La Cuvier. So their relationship is very important, and it's super interesting. I love the relationship and the, the unique dynamics of that between the winemaker and the grower because they are so, so, so interconnected. I show up to La Cuvier. And we meet in their wine library. Clay, who's the winemaker, along with his assistant winemaker, Tom, set up a beautiful spread in their library. You walk down this hallway, old bottles from floor to ceiling. And the nook where we sit, we are surrounded, all sides, floor to ceiling, with wine bottles. I love rooms like this. Dimly lit, perfect climate. Okay, should we bring back the Jodeci music? No, I'm kidding. Oh, that smell. That smell never gets old. And they're opening up some old bottles. I mean, they're digging, dusting off the library for this conversation. They even have that fancy basket 
that you pour old wines out of so you always keep it on its side. I mean, hospitality up to 11, and we haven't even hit record yet. Man, I cannot wait to see what happens when we do. So give me that mm-hmm sound, boogie bow, we pass on round till the job is camped out in the trees. It will simplify good company. Look at this. Cheers, gentlemen. Cheers. Cheers again. Yes. 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 Eye contact. Yes. I don't think I got munch. I got to get you, big. If we're going to do this. Yeah. Wow. This is quite a little spread you have. We're surrounded like 360 degrees by your whole career, John Munch. Or at least a part of it. A part of it, huh? Yeah, I mean, this library is beautiful. How many bottles again? 9,000. It holds 9,000. 9,000. What are we 9, in now? 9,000. We got also uh, Ishka here. Yes. Ishka, it's a pleasure to meet you, my man. Guy Omar, also you farm uh, the fruit that mainly John is using for La Cuvier. Yes, I come from the old uh, Richard Surrett School of Farming, the late, great Richard Surrett. Do tell, because and he, first Surrett. of all, if someone doesn't know, if someone's listening, doesn't know Richard Surrett. Yes. Richard Surrett died far too young, and he had many, many years to go. But this guy would show up. And how old was Richard Surrett when he died? A munch? Or, or anybody? 82. 82. Yes. This guy would still show up to a wine event three buttons down perfect chest hair women of all ages enamored by his personality Uh and looks and he and he had the strongest handshake i can remember and what a sweet man Correct. I'd go over to Ishka's to pick up grapes, and there'd be this tractor driver coming in just covered in dust and whatnot, and this big guy would get off and shake his body around. It's Richard, uh, 80-something, already, you know, still driving a tractor all day long. It's quite remarkable. Yeah. His impact on this uh, wine appellation uh, was not completely realized, you know. Uh, He was just about to retire and go into his golden years. But he fell short of those uh, opportunities. He was growing Zinfandel that like Rosenblum and, and, and folks from outside the area would just like, I want, I want all of it. You know, it, it, was, it was crazy, this guy's reputation. No, he was the very first wine designated in the Passeria Robles Appellation by HMR, thanks to Andre Chelechev coming here, sampling it and saying this wine has to be designated. Before that, there was not a vineyard designated wine in Pass Robles. So is that right? So I have carried on that tradition and now <laughs> I'm the principal purveyor of fine fruit to the Locuvia brand. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Henceforth our friendship uh, enduring friendship with the uh Mr. Oh, Munch. One little yes. one little thing on, on last thing on Richard when I first met him, I was invited over to his house and his uh, lady friend partner at the time was the next Playboy Bunny. So that would give you an idea of Richard. Yeah, he seemed like he did okay in that category. <laughs> he did not have a problem at all. Right. Like you said, at 80, he still looked great. Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I remember being at one block party on the West Side, and uh, it was like, you know, bands moving this and that, and he was just by a table, and he would just stand there, and he would just have a glass of red wine in his hand, and again, you know, three, four buttons down with like that plaid kind of farm boy shirt and some jeans, and women of all ages would just desire to talk to him, and he was so, you know, polite, and I mean, he was just great. He was a great guy, yeah. We definitely miss Richard Surrett, so I'm really happy that you brought up his name right. and, and that connection and, and, was there. On that very same note, I must say that that was the reason as to how I met him when I first arrived here in 1996 
my wife too was enamored by him and walked up to him and had a conversation <laughs> <laughs> so, that's a great story that's awesome well Ishka we're going to get into Gaiomar of course there's a lot of history to touch on with uh, John Munch and you know on the 40 minute drive up here uh, John you know just wanted to hit a few people I like doing that when I'm talking to somebody and yes I've already kind of you know prepared and looked into what you know where we want the conversation to go but it's fun to hit those quick conversations and you'll Collins was one of them. Uh, Mark Adams. I called up several people, you know, probably some from your deep past, some you, you may like, some you may not like, but it was really, really cool. And everyone had such neat things to say about you. And I mean, really a pioneer of just that, that eccentric winemaker, a winemaker. Would you say that you're a winemaker of philosophy and art even more than you are technical and, and scientific? Oh, when I, uh, when I first got here, I wasn't even in wine. I was doing, um, uh, Victorian renovation cabinet building, doing windows and doors and whatnot. So I fell into the wine from the back door. Uh, my uh, educational background is in what's known as uh, Old English, <laughs> you know, very useful, like 7th and 8th century uh, English poetry and whatnot. So very useful. Uh, <laughs> and I just fell into it. And over the uh, for a period of time, I, just, I tried to read all the available texts from Davis and Fresno and go up and do short courses, etc., but ultimately, I realized that as much as that information was very good, it wasn't designed for the way Ishka grows grapes or the way we do wine. It was really the mandate after Prohibition was how do you rejuvenate this industry that's been effectively destroyed through Prohibition? And the goal was not Le Cuvier, but it was more Gallo and producing a very good serviceable wine in the quantities that are necessary. Yeah. So that was... Um, in fact, when Clay and I got together, or even uh, uh, Neil Collins, uh, everybody that ha- has worked for me, except I think Todd Ricard, uh, didn't do um, um, enology studies. Uh, Neil Collins was couldn't even speak English. He was you know speaking Cockney or something. And yeah, <laughs> had a green green mohawk. He was a chef. Uh, Clay was doing classical studies in in Greece, and again, my background has nothing to do with it. Generally, the concept I I look at it's it's really good because we're stupid enough and don't know enough to be um, dissuaded from trying things due to um, a, a scientific study. But when we do get into trouble, the first person we go to talk to is somebody that has that degree and has the science and the background, etc. Um, that's why when we hired the assistant winemaker, we didn't really pushed back by the fact that he has a degree. (laughs) (laughs) He's thankful for that. Where did wine take you? So you were a master carpenter. You were building your house uh, a while ago, and then you you get introduced to... Yeah, I was doing a Victorian renovation up in San Francisco while I was going to San Francisco State. Uh, My late wife was from the Alps in France, and she lived in a little teeny village, as I mentioned earlier. I was born in Costa Rica and grew up pretty much on the Caribbean coast of Panama, Costa Rica, Guatemala, and later Honduras. And uh, we both wanted to go to a little area. It wasn't anything to do with wine. We were looking for something that reminded us being small. And a friend of mine, um, Michael Libri, he was um, an English artist living in Provence. When we lived there, we became very friendly with him. He came to visit a lady in Cambria, and she had property back up here in the in the hills on the west side. And, um, Michael called me up. We were living up in San Francisco. Then he said, you got to come down here. The hills here are just like the hills in Provence, except instead of the olive groves, it's almond orchards. So we came down, uh, 
and we're driving, and it was a day as hot as it has been the past week, and we're going through San Ardo, and it was, uh, I tell people, it was like the th- Dante's third level of hell. Uh, it was so hot and miserable. I said, what is this guy talking about? And we pull into Paso, swing into what used to be called the rodeo club right away for Cuba Libres, but when we got up into the, into the hills uh, to go visit Michael. Well, you're a cocktail guy. Well, you know, I like that. Yeah, well, it's sometimes it's it's you gotta you gotta spread around. Sure. Yeah. So when we head over to the hills, though, it just we immediately fell in love with it. You know, the wild herbs, the smells, and the rest of it of being up here in the hills, and it was just lovely. Uh, again, when I bought this property, it was to do a uh, we were going to buy properties, do spec homes, and then uh, sell and move on. This property, ten acres, very small. When I bought it uh, to do the home here, we, there was a choice between this and another property out to the west of town. Um, same price, 10 acres versus whatever, 60 acres or whatever the other one. It was called Justin more, more recently. <laughs> but it was too far <laughs> wow. away. Too far away, and there was no in- involvement with uh, wine then. It was her brother had a group of um, investors from Champagne, small producers from the Cote de Blanc in Champagne. And he called his sister to say, you know, we, we want to start looking for property in California. Uh, they were trying to jump on the bandwagon with uh, uh, and follow what Domaine Chandon had been done with the French sparkling wines being brought here, a.k.a. Champagne. Uh, and it sort of felt to me to do research where to where to buy property, et cetera, et cetera. Next thing I knew, I was making a sparkling wine that was 82, you know, with a background in old West Saxon poetry. And I started Adelaide as sellers more as a device to find out about marketing. Uh, and the house <laughs> didn't get finished. The house that I started in 78 didn't get finished till about 2003 or four. Uh, and never got sold. Yeah. So there. Damn. And there's a lot. I mean, so obviously Adelaide in its first years. And was there any wild horse crossover? Uh, uh, yeah, because Neil Collins, who ended up working for me uh, for quite a while, had worked a season at Wild Horse, and um, I knew Kenny Volk well. And in fact, one year, our wine gets very complicated. For a period of time, then I might as well have had a wine on casters because I'd have moved from place to place. And I did one vintage at Wild Horse. Uh, but yeah, Neil approached, uh, I got a letter, and it was from Neil Collins, and he said he very much wanted to work for Adelaide Sellers because I was Adelaide Sellers then. Right. And could he come and visit and, and apply and the rest of it? And then up comes his car up to the top of this hill, an old Volvo held together with bailing wire, and out gets <laughs> Neil and his wife Marcy and this little baby. I think Jordan was maybe three months old or something. Neil starts to talk to me, and you, you couldn't understand it because he couldn't speak English. And I realized right away that he also didn't write that letter. It was Marcy that wrote it for him. And I subsequently found out that the reason he contacted Adelaide Sellers is because there wasn't a winery alphabetically before us. If it had been an aardvark. Oh, man. Are you kidding? That is so funny. So, yeah. He, and, 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 uh, Neil, just, he was phone book dialing. Yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> and and what's, what was interesting is when he came, I was contemplating having an assistant, but I didn't want somebody who had been tainted by... Uh, sorry, Thomas, by the education. Yes. And, uh, I, but he was a chef and a very good chef. Uh, and uh, I looked at it. I said, look at this car. He keep the car working. A small winery, you have to be a, geek, a gearhead. You have to be hands-on. 
If he's a chef, he's used to those 18-hour days. In a small winery, you better be used to that also. And by being a chef, he was very much um, attuned to the flavors and the smells. He didn't have the wine speak. You know, he couldn't talk about uh, this wine is like, um, you know, like a Chinese uh, restaurant or something. But he, right. could, he, could, he knew what he was tasting, and he could describe it. So that was the start. And then he and I spent... A long time uh, developing an understanding for him of the science of the lab and the rest of it. I think we spent about probably an hour and a half with a high school uh, chemistry textbook yeah, uh, so that I could explain what we did in terms of the analysis and whatnot. Then we threw away the textbook and we just did by rote. But in terms of then being flavors and working with the vineyards uh, and getting an understanding of uh, what we're trying to do, one of the the wine you're having here is a wine that was uh, fermented like a red wine open top. Grapes thrown into an open top fermenter, and it's just treated like a red wine. There's a 1998 Chardonnay. Yeah. It tastes beautiful. Yeah, and it, and it holds. And, and Neil said, well, why aren't we doing that with the whites? And uh, then he went off to work for Topless Creek and left me uh, with, with the experiment. Yeah. And, and, it's, and it continued. But you were making wine a lot differently than other people were making wine then, right? I mean, a lot of people like maybe the Eberleys at the time and other people would be like, you know, what's this native ferment? No, that's not, we're not, no. No, it, it's, it's, uh, I would think I was one of the first people to uh, try different yeasts. Yeasts were usually done, uh, just a couple of commercial yeasts that might be done. I got risky and tried uh, Montrachet, which was an isolation from uh, Burgundy in France. And uh, barrel fermenting, nobody was doing. Uh, You're super experimental, though, weren't you? Yeah, just uh, obnoxiously so. You would just yeah be willing to try anything. It's funny, a lot of the things that you just said in a few minutes, like you were talking about Neil Collins, and when I was talking to him, he was saying that, uh, I said, what did you learn from John Munch? And he's like, just go for it. If you think it's if you think it's right or whatever, just go, just go, just do it. You know, and I mean this fearlessness. He called you fearless, and I thought that was really cool. And then you talk about like the book and just throwing away the book. And he was talking about because Neil Collins, he said he had two mentors. It was John Munch and then Kenny Volk. And he said Ken uh, Ken Volk could make wine uh, beyond the book, but John Munch uh, didn't even act like there was a book. He didn't even know there was a book. And if he knew the book, he read it front to back and then threw it away. He said he. He called me fearless. He used to just call me stupid. <laughs> I can't believe that. It was really cool. I mean, he was probably the most, I mean, you really imparted a lot to him. And that's got to be really cool because, like, I mean, here's the winemaker for Thomas Creek. is Lo Madrone. He's doing fantastic. But your Quan, your ish, whatever that is, it really implanted the kind of winemaker. And I asked him, I said, are you the kind of winemaker you are in part because of John Munch? He said, absolutely, 100%. Well, the, I think the, there is a difference also because usually you have a winemaker, an assistant winemaker, a cellar master, whatever, and it's um, dictate from the top. Uh, what we do is to look at it. It's really how do you handle the grapes and get them into the position where the wine makes itself. And Neil and I, Clay and I uh, here would work together where we wouldn't even talk during the day during harvest. Uh, speak of you might grunt a few times. But there's no boss and there's no uh, underling. There is always what is the job and everybody does what ne- mm-hmm. what's necessary. Gets it done. And then people want to try an experiment or we sometimes have an inadvertent experiment. <laughs> like when I dumped the wrong bin into the wrong tank. <laughs> but, uh, but all of that is uh, anybody, uh, you come up with an idea like Neil coming up with, why don't we barrel ferment Chardonnay or why don't we ferment on the skins? And um, there it is, you know, and you come out and then that becomes 
within a couple of years, that's everything was done. Two people mentioned to me this word, and I thought it was so interesting they got it from two different people. And I want to know if you've heard it, and maybe Ishka, if you have, munch fairies. Uh, I've heard Neil talk about that, mm-hmm. that I can get away with stuff that other people can't. Yes. Munch fairies, you can't afford to copy what John Munch does because it'll never end up the same. It won't. You won't pull it off the way John Munch does because he's got munch fairies. It was Neil Collins and Terry Colton, both mentioned independently, munch fairies. That's interesting. And, and Clay, who's the winemaker here at Le Cuvier now, uh, really does all the decision-making. I fix toilets and other things. Right. So, you know, like, but... Uh, <laughs> He does similar the same thing, although he has, I think it's called, um, it, uh, what is it called where you want to make everything clean? OCD. OCD. Oh, yeah, OCD, he says. Yeah, which I don't have. But otherwise, he does all this uh, uh, risk-taking and the rest of it, and he's come, again, from the same kind of idea, and it's all about uh, food, flavors, etc. You know, sort of a key thing, though, and, and getting to the to the vineyards and talking about working with Neil Utsen from Castoro. Yes. We ended Another up... Another pioneer, for sure. When we're doing the sparkling wine, and for one reason or another, our host winery, the old Estrella winery, went into Chapter 11 bankruptcy, and we were, oh, what do we do? Uh, my group from France bought 200 acres, which is now where the Castoro winery is, up north of town. Yeah. We put up the building, Neil Utsen came in with all the finification equipment, etc., and we made wine uh, together, working on each other's projects, but, you know, just generally together. And the big aha moment was Neil and I coming into the winery early one morning during harvest, and we walk into the lab before you get into the main part of the winery, and we both turned to each other and said, what the hell is that? And there was this incredibly appealing smell. And in this place, there were 13 big stainless steel tanks with refrigerated jackets and full of fermenting Cabernet, Chardonnay, God knows what else. And there was one open top tank uh, that's four foot high, eight foot diameter, that was about half full of dry farm Zinfandel from the old Tennessee vineyard out on um, Willow Creek Road. It overwhelmed all of these big tanks and the, you know, this incredible... It took up the... It filled the entire winery. It, it filled the entire winery. And it came to me then that it is not just grapes and it's just not sun, that it's how they're grown. Where do you get the personality from? How can you gain this personality? And if you are growing grapes like Ishka does, it's not the way to get high yields and make a lot of money. But it has to be a passion. That's a perfect transition because Ishka, I want to ask you, how do you cross paths and meet a John Munch? And then where where does wine where has wine taken you where you decide this is the way that you want to farm? Right. So the uh, being a farmer in Paso Robles is uh, an ignominious job. There's very little recognition, <laughs> and uh, in terms of uh, loyalties. Many programs don't have long-lasting associations or relationships. So going from pillar to post for the first 10 years of my career as a farmer, I finally bumped into John Munch and the Lecuvier program. And I think for the past 12 years or so, we've been partners in crime or... Crime or whatever. <laughs> whatever it is. <laughs> but uh, it, there's, a, there's a level of comfort to really hone your art in terms of being uh, sort of this minority farmer, a head-trained dry farmer, and uh, create this alternative flavor profile under very conditions of duress. And, 
that struggle and hardship and hardship and uh, angry wives yes and <laughs> <laughs> uh, 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 unstable relationships i think <laughs> but uh, uh, it's and mind you farmers get one paycheck once a year so uh, you, you must be able to tighten your belt every so often what is it about farming that bit you that makes you so infatuated with that what you just described in the last 60 seconds is a struggle correct i you seek it when i first arrived here i was amazed by the tradition of farmers and farming here and the impetus of uh, farming on the whole appellation of pastoral blaze it was not a winery driven uh, appellation it was a vineyard-driven Appalachian, and that's what Appalachians are all about. It's the success of the collective vineyards. Henceforth, I was, uh, as I said, really enamored by the personalities, the surettes, the peasantes, the doozies, and so on and so forth, and tried to emulate them and carry on that tradition. And I might be now the current custodian of these traditions, hopefully passing them on into the future. And uh, what were some of these benchmarks then? What did you learn from, you know, the Pizzanis, the Ducies? That's a great one, too. And some of these old, you know, Paso farmers and who are known. I mean, thank God for Janelle, because now she's the Ducie name is now known for its wine. But for a while, Ducie was known for its fruit. Yes. And uh, uh, it was uh, a hardship uh, because you didn't get the high price point. It was a way of life as opposed to something that was really the bright lights of the big city. It right. was a way of life. Mm-hmm. And how do you endure year after year knowing the uncertainties of the weather to come or the... Why did you uh, choose Paso uh, in the late 90s? What brought you here? I had a very uh, sort of uh, a feeling that I wanted to be a gentleman farmer but I readily realized there was nothing gentlemanly about being a farmer. <laughs> and now I'm caught up in this very vicious cycle and there doesn't seem to be an exit plan as such. <laughs> so, and you meet John when? So John, uh, it, it's, see, we, we have, our paths have uh, intersected on many occasions. Uh, Steve Glossner originally, right, wasn't it? Correct. Yeah. Steve, That's another old schooler. Yes, right, right. Yeah. Who's also, uh, I would say, in the school of uh, John Munch, a student, and now a contemporary of John Munch, who happens to be the winemaker at Guyoma Wine Cellars. Oh, uh, Steve Glossner makes your wines? Correct. Oh, yes. cool. Because, I mean, we talked to, I mean, shoot, Justin. I mean, of course, he's got his own brand, Paso Port, of course, also, and they're even doing some spirits. So, yeah, I mean, he, he goes back... <laughs> Two a long time. Yeah, when I um, left Adelaide Cellars and moved, went moved further out, I convinced uh, Steve to come into Adelaide for um, to take over as a winemaker. So I, I replaced myself with with Steve. So we go way back in it from the days at Justin, and then I think uh, every place he's gone. When we found each other, found Ishka through each other also. Uh, yeah, and it, it the 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 shot in the vineyard though. I think that that. Um, if I can interject with Ishka, is when you're dealing with dry farm, you cannot moderate the yield. You have to deal with what the soil can give you for the vine. And when you get a, a happy marriage, it's when both partners, the vineyard and the winery, are always have an eye on the health of the vine. 
Uh, and normally what you have, the, the relationship with, between vineyards and wineries is the winery says, I want to get you to crop way down so I get this higher quality, but I don't want to pay for the grapes. And the vineyard is saying, I want a big price for the, for the grapes, but I, and I want to grow eight tons to the acre or whatever. I'm exaggerating. But when you can get away from that and you realize that you are both in the same wheelhouse. Wheel, yeah, and it's, it's, I wouldn't even call it a business. Ishka doesn't go grapes. We don't make wine. We're both part of the process that results in a bottle. Yeah. And when you realize that that's a single process uh, through uh, and that you're not going to get the personality in the wine unless you can get the personality in the grapes. Yeah. And then you really have to support each other for that to happen. Because if you if you argue about price and don't recognize the vineyard's uh, financial <laughs> predicament, uh, you're not going to get those grapes except that maybe that one time. And it's a really unique relationship to have with your grower. Yeah. It's almost like, I mean, you guys have something very different than just a business relationship. It's symbiotic. It, it, it is part and parcel of the whole equation. You know, you, you can't have one without the other. So you're a farmer, but you're obviously very close to the situation as well. Do you guys ever go back and forth on pick dates or is it like, how, what do you guys talk about there? Uh, yeah, completely. Uh, uh, actually, it's, it's really uh, Clay Selkirk, uh, who's now in control here at Le Cuvier. And I go and I... Clay's been awesome, by the way. He's not mic'd up, but he's helped set this up. And, he's, you know, he's here and he's been incredible. I, uh, I sort of follow along with it, but we work very closely. And it's always a, the, the amount of time that gets spent uh, by the winemaker in the vineyard with the grape grower is, is critical. And it's a collaborative decision on when to pick. Sometimes logistics forces you. You know, you can get these spikes of heat or problems with pickers, but we also don't go cheap on what we're willing to pay pickers or we're paying for the grapes so we can always try and get the best quality. But it takes that collaborative discussion. It's, it's not that we go in and say, we demand that you pick on such and such a date or Ishka says, well, I'm going to pick on this date and deliver the damn things to you and whether you like them sure. or not. Sure. But, but do you guys ever go back and forth? I want it to be the 24th. I think we should pick September 24th, October 24th. And then Ishka goes, no, I think we need to wait out a little bit more. I think we it's, it's 90 sure. degrees. We need to wait till it cools down, let the bricks fall. I don't know. I'm just saying. Yes. Certainly, certainly. Yeah. And, and that's, uh, you know, uh, uh, but it's also about logistics because uh, harvest comes, it's, it's a concise period of time. And uh, consequently, tanks are full in the winery. Yeah. How do you get fruit in? So it's mostly logistics. Yeah. But uh, well, we'll also, one of the key things that we've done is to try to uh, is always make sure we had more tanks than we needed. We've been caught a couple of times, but I usually wanted to see at least a couple of open top tanks not being used during the harvest. That's a silly waste of space and time. But it's, it uh, comes down to, uh, can you get the crews in? Then what we do is to drive Ishka and other growers crazy is we like to see the pick at from the same part of the vineyard at three different levels of ripeness because you get a broader diversity of of the aspect of the grape. For example, on the Zinfandel, you pick it down into what's now considered underripe. That's where you get a lot of the pepper. You pick it at the other extreme. That's all that raspberry and jam. So you get that, and then you get that thing called brambly in the middle, whatever the hell that means. Yeah. And, so uh, you'll take a block or a specific area, and you'll say, I want to get three different kind of sections of this exactly. room. I'm going to get a little early, get some high acid, some other stuff here. I'm going to get a little middle, and I'm going to get a little bit more ripe. And and I think then, uh, then uh, the grower will know that since we're also looking at the at – the, 
at the health of the vine, we're not going to ask for this massively ripe grape that's been shriveled so the loss of tonnage is there, and then make Jesus wine by adding water back into the tank. No, sure. And uh, so, and Zinfandel is one of these tough ones because uh, you know we've learned over the years it's uncharacteristically different. A, a yeah. shoulder of Zinfandel could have raisins on one side and green, green berries, berries on the and, other. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. But it's probably the hardest grape to grow and even a harder wine to make. Yeah. And consequently, there have been very few winemakers who have been able to harness the content of Zinfandel, essentially tame it, and make an august wine. To stay out of the way. And express the vineyard. That's the whole point. Yeah. It's ex- an expression of the vineyard. And something else that Mr. Suret didn't mention to me was a nutritionally balanced wine does equate to physiologically mature fruit. Say that again. A nutritionally balanced wine equates to physiologically balance fruit. Okay. Yes. So you can't get balanced fruit if your wine is struggling. I mean, we're opening up wines and we're going to have an 88 in a second. This is a 1998 Chardonnay. It's, it's beautiful. And this was, I mean, this is, you're just learning or you're probably a few years out. I mean, you, but this is a very, this is a very young wine for you. You had only a crack at it a handful yeah. of times. No, that, uh, that was the, the discovery was that, uh, being obnoxious and uh, whatnot <laughs> of what I was doing things. Uh, uh, how much of this is Paso's ageability? How much is this is what you learned in your technique that kept this wine in a beautiful place where we could open it up? I mean, imagine you would, back then you probably thought 2021 had like, you know, hoverboards and, and like jets and, <laughs> yeah, exactly, you know, yeah. and here we are in 2021 opening up this wine and it's gorgeous. It's part of it is uh, a very, uh, definitely Paso has some great growing conditions. It has uh, not just a single a uniform soil or, or uh, a microclimate uh, type of uh, environment, it has this great breadth of, of uh, potentials and qualities. And each of them can work towards growing a grape that it becomes the highest expression of that specific location. When you're on a dry farm vineyard, it's not just the vineyard. Every vine is an individual and when Ishka goes through it and prunes every year, he's looking at each vine. He's not sing, sitting there saying, well, I'm going to prune to this many spurs and this many buds. You know, he's looking at that vine and looking at how last year's growth uh, manifests itself after the leaves have fallen. And then he'll either expand or restrict the vine to get to, it's, a, it's always a ch- you're chasing a yeah. moving target. I love this question. And I'm going to ask John in a second from a winemaker's perspective, because I love the answer I got from Stefano and Guillaume and, and different folks who look at wine from whether it's art or it's craft. But before I ask John Munch that question, Ishka, I want to ask you from a farming mm-hmm. perspective, how much of farming, and maybe subjective, how much of it for you is art or is it craft? It's certainly art. It is the choreography in the vineyard. The wines essentially dance. The afternoon breezes from the Templeton Gap. You see the art of the wine, the dance of the wine. Consequently, the Erudition of farming is what translates into the elixir in the glass. So it is art. And those who try to make it mechanized are failing this art form. Those who try to commercialize it are failing the art form. Those who try to disnify it, to simplify it, are failing the art form. It is certainly art of the 
most ancient variety and paso is the citadel of this art form and we certainly have to nurture it and essentially uh, we are as minor custodians of it for a period of time. Period of time. Period yeah, of time. so eloquently put. And I want to talk about Paso in a second with yeah. both of you. Why don't you answer that question, John? As far as the winemaking, how much of it is art? How much of it is craft? I think it's, for me, it's really uh, neither. It's just uh, recognizing when to get the heck out of the way. My previous comment about here's this potential from this part of the vineyard this particular year, that's 100%. It might have been uh, 90% if equated from the previous year or 110% from the previous, you know, it's, it's year, the year. But what we found over time is you get the good grapes in and, and again, anything you do uh, degrades that potential. So what is, what's happening is we are, we, we call ourselves wine herds, not wine makers. So we're just providing the environment uh, for the wine to grow and produce it itself. One thing I learned fairly quickly on was that, uh, yeast and other microorganisms, these are sentient colonies. They, uh, they operate in a way that sometimes it can be remarkable. I mean, the, the studies that have been done that show that wines, fermenting, etc., where different music is being played, result in different characteristics. I'm thinking of back to the days in Adelaide as an, an example we would go into the barrel, barrel uh, open top ferment for a while, go in and finish fermenting the barrel. And there was a, uh, a big room at Adelaida that was uh, sort of semi-terranean. It was bermed, and it was dark all the time. That's where the barrels were stored. It was the humidified temperature control. So nothing was changing. You'd go into the barrel then, and you get into December and whatnot, and wines would have finished fermenting, and they even tasted you know, fairly dry. So we put the solid bungs in them. And then as soon as the spring would come and the almond orchards would start to blossom and whatnot, bungs would be flying all over the place. Nothing had <laughs> changed in the environment, but the grapes are sent, uh, the, the, the yeast and other organisms are scenting that there's something else going on. There, it's, it's, it's time for activity again. Uh, likewise, we'd have a zen. But can music affect that, literally? Oh, it does. They you think it, so? Yeah, it, it, music affects the way the wine Wine, some, certain wines like certain music. Is that right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Do you play certain music for certain wines? Well, of course. What kind of music do you play for the wines, the grapes? Oh, well, the Grateful Dead, of course. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Grateful Dead. Yes. No, it, it's, it's, uh, uh, another example would be uh, having a Zinfandel. And one of the things with Zin, is, is Ishka says, hey, it's a difficult grape. It's not, in my view, a difficult wine to make, but it has conditions where you have on a given cluster, the majority of the grapes are going to be in that zone of what you're looking for as far mm -hmm. as maturity. But you'll have these translucent grapes that are semi-green, and then you have these raisining uh, desiccated uh, grapes. Now, the translucent grapes are lacking sugar but have a lot of acid, but the raisins are concentration of sugar and concentration of acid. So you get these things going together. You pick grapes at, use something, a technical term, say 24 bricks or something, and you think you're going to have, oh, 14% alcohol wine with aging and the rest of it. And you go into the fermenter and it does show that your potential based on the, the bricks level of the, the juice is going to be that. Uh, the wine starts to ferment. You go back to the next day and it's gone up 2% in, in bricks. And it's gone from 24 to 25 or 26. Two days later, it's fermenting like crazy and the, and the bricks keeps going up. What is happening is it's a breakdown of the raisins releasing concentrated sugar and acid into the fermentation. 
then you end up with this wine that's sort of sweet. And you're sitting there and saying, oh, my God, I've made a, a late harvest in or something like right. that. Uh, what's happened is that, especially if you're using wild uh, yeast like we do, just the uh, indigenous yeast, they can handle a lot of alcohol, but they run out of nutrients. Our wines are typically in barrel at least three years. Uh, some are up to seven. Um, late harvest, that one was how many years? 13. 13 years. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, that's an, we didn't tell my partner about that. Uh, <laughs> but you start to get this breakdown and the release of the breakdown of uh, the leaves and whatnot releases nutrients back into the juice. And then it gives the opportunity for the viable microorganisms to kick off again. And they also like to kick off during harvest. They seem to know that there's this really? thing, this party. That's they know on. something's going on around something's them. Something's going on. I've seen... Still so like the new... Like the, the freshman class is coming in yeah, or something. Out, and, and everybody's partying and they're, they're ready to join. And if you think of, of, if you think of it, uh, it as a chemical process, you miss the boat. If you think of it as a collaboration between the microorganisms, the vineyard, and, uh, and the, uh, the wine herds... Uh, then I think you're catching a picture of of that kind of wine. It's not the only kind of wine. How much does superstition play a role? Do you ever like stick a little, you know, something on a stuck ferment? Or do you ever like have certain songs you'll put on? I mean, is there somewhat of, you know, Michael Jordan wore his Tar Heel shorts under every Chicago Bulls game, you know? Are there some superstitions that you allow and, and play into? I just talk to the yeast. Do you? Yeah. What do you say to it? I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> no? It's private? <laughs> if I put on some R&B music right here, how would you speak to the yeast? Trade, trade secrets. Trade, yeah, trade secrets. <laughs> it's, it, it's, <laughs> it's real, it's, I think ultimately it's, it's not so much what you say, it's what you also think and project. Yeah. Uh, Steve Glossner is a funny uh, uh, story I can tell about Steve. Steve has his background in enology yeah. uh, from, uh, from Fresno State, and uh, when... He and I first start to get together. Uh, he was at Justin, I think, at the time, and that's when he made that great wine that really drove Justin, you know, all the way. And Paso. Yeah, and Paso mm-hmm. all the way up. And uh, Steve and I were in town, and we weren't drinking wine. I think it was Bushmills or Jameson or something at that point. And Steve was a little bit, yeah, he got there. Uh, and he, we're out in the street weaving around, and he turned to me. And this is this guy with an enology degree. He said, I think I finally get it. The wines need to be happy in order to be good. And, you know, you're sitting there looking at the scientist. And when he said that, it was, oh, my, you know, he, he did get it. We talked about this on the last episode. My girlfriend always says when we pick out eggs, happy eggs come from happy chickens. Oh, yeah. And, and we've talked about happy food comes from a happy kitchen. And no doubt, happy wine comes from a happy cellar. And, and happy grapes, sure. And happy, happy farmers. Happy, vine- happy vineyards. Happy you know, vineyards. Not, not necessarily happy farmers. Yeah. No. <laughs> <laughs> Let's not go too far, Adam. Well played. And that's a, that's a really good analogy because if you think of um, uh, how eggs are typically manufactured, you have chickens laying under grow lights and whatnot, and you're pumping them out. The chickens produce incredible number of eggs. Uh, they're insipid eggs to start with, but then the chickens are worn out very quickly, and then they become dog food or whatever one does with old yeah. chickens. Uh, chickens that uh, can uh, be out and lay naturally and whatnot, you get these wonderful flavors. Well, you see a difference in just the color of the yolk. Uh, and, and they live a longer time, etc. Vineyards that are farmed for just yield and quantity without consideration of balance uh, and uh, the integrity of the grape and whatnot don't last very long. They have to be replanted. Older, these older vineyards, we get grapes from some vineyards in the past that were over 100 years old. And 
Yes, the yields are low, but the personality, my goodness. Ishka, how long before you start to see personality after a vineyard is planted? What is your uh, sense? Maybe 12 years. Yeah. Yes, 12 to 15 years. The age of the professional farmer has gone by the wayside. You know, it's uh, there are very few really own operators farming their own vineyards anymore. So, so the overall quality of the product is being compromised. And all this is happening while Paso is blowing up. But is the client conscious of quality or is he coming here for a carnival atmosphere? Yeah, well, they're coming here for an experience. Um, yes. And to yeah. spend money. <laughs> yeah, and to spend money, right? Yeah, and on your wines and stuff, sure. I mean, are you, what, are your, what are your thoughts on the way things have changed in that way? I'm curious now. Uh, well, yes. Wine should not be an experience. It should be a revelation. Really? Okay, so when you say wine shouldn't be an experience, I was like, ooh, I've got to know where he's going to go with this. You're saying it should even be more profound than an experience. Correct. correct. It should be almost like an epiphany. Right. Those who want an experience, honestly, there's some cheap weed in the neighborhood. Mm -hmm. That is an experience. Yeah, okay. Yes. But wine is almost, it is... Wine Wine should be transcendent. It's a religion. And it's... It's about uh, the progression of your uh, sort of uh, appreciation of it. Yeah, sure. I like how you put it like that way. I was interviewing uh, Cal Poly professor Stephen Lloyd Moffat. He wrote a book about the spirituality of wine. And then later, the second book was The Spirituality of Winemakers. And he's a comparative religion professor at Cal Poly. But he's just a wine lover. And he's a Central Coast guy. And he's just, uh, they're, they're two fantastic books. And... I, you know, in, in talking about wine being spiritual, and you're saying wine is a religion, where in your journey and the steward that you are with at Ishka, where is that salvation? Because the idea of a religion is to have a salvation of some sort. Where do you find that? Right. I want, I want to beat the moneylenders at the old <laughs> At the temple. Amen. <laughs> I'm just joking. Yeah, no, of course, of course. I love it. I love it. But <laughs> so, uh, what about you? I mean, John, as far as the way Paso, we well, elaborate to what Ishka said, but then I want to talk to yeah. you about just the way Paso's evolved. Well, it's, I, I think for me, the, the key thing is that there is not just one kind of wine or one goal. And similarly, in the vineyards, you have uh, um, wine growers, and you have on the other side of that, you have um, grape growers. And grape growers are growing a commodity. A wine grower is growing a bottle of wine and really involved. When I would have the people from Champagne, when I was doing the sparkling wine for them, come over and whatnot, and other uh, French winemakers, and I wanted to really blow their minds, I wouldn't go and get a a great bottle of Napa Cabernet or some of the best from Paso Robles, etc. I'd go out and get a bottle of Gallo's Hardy Burgundy, and I'd pour it for them and not show the label, (coughs) excuse me, and whatnot. And uh, they would say, oh, c'est pas mal. Uh, this, you know, it's, it's okay wine. And then I say, this is a wine made by the world's largest winery from the cheapest grapes in California. And their faces would just plummet. Mm-hmm. The quality of those wines and that market, it's a whole distinctly different thing. One of the w- analogies I often use is, is, and it's not to diss a certain type of wine or a certain type of restaurant, but if you want to uh, have a meal where... You're not going to be surprised where the kids aren't going to freak out because something is different. 
you go to a place like Denny's. Denny's is not about a unique experience. It's about being comfortable. It's about being a familiar experience. Familiar a place. Because no, I can go to a Denny's in Paso, and I can go to a Denny's in Albuquerque, and I'm going to get the same meal. Same righteousness mm. also. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's all the same. And I, that's I, I, a, I thought it was Hooters. Hooters. Right, too. there you go. Same thing. No, but sure, same idea though, right? But it's, 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 a, it's, a, very, it's a very valid uh, position. Why not? A lot of people, what they get is their wine that they want every night. They want it to taste the same because that's what they want. When I buy uh, Knob Creek bourbon, I want it to taste like Knob Creek bourbon. When I buy Jameson uh, Irish whiskey, I want it to taste like Jameson. If I had a bottle of Jameson... You expect consumer consistency. Consistency. But when I want something special, I'll go for a a single barrel if it's going to be a spirit. Yeah. Or I'll go for a wine that's an experience. So the same holds true for me if you use the analogy of a restaurant. When you want the experience, you're going to go to a place where even though the menu might say the same words on it on, uh, for several nights or whatever, the meal will vary based on the ingredients, the magic that's going in, in the kitchen on that particular day, and it ends up being an experience that's special. The key point there is that... It's that Revelation Ishko it referred to. It, the key point is that people that go and uh, have a vineyard that's a farming operation that's based on <clears throat> the finances of a business, are, that's v- absolutely valid. Uh, the wineries that make wines that are going to be the same every all the time and whatnot, that's... And, and when I, I look at magic, I look at uh, Gallo, how the hell do they get the same wine month after month after month from the millions of cases, they make the taste identical. That's that's alchemy. I could never do that. Right. That's what is, is expected of, of those wines. And it really, you know, if you look at also, uh, to pull back a little bit, if you look at the economics, if you the year that you get the first crop off your vines, you can start to depreciate it. So your CPA and your banker is telling you how to grow grapes also. So you get somebody like Ishka who's growing the vine and building the vine before he takes a single cluster off the thing is being very stupid when but, it comes to his taxes. Right. But conversely, the beauty of farmers in Pastorobles is that we can bring about that level of consistency, vintage after vintage after vintage, not by the adjustments in the winery, by adjusting our focus in the vineyard. We are able to bring about the same level of consistency to keep that so-called flavor profile of, say, a Lacuvia brand or a Gaioma brand where we have, can keep an audience and their focus. That's a high-level yes. task, though, huh? Because you look at, like, say, 2011, and then you go to, say, 2015, yes. 2017. I mean, these are three completely different years, with, which probably posed a lot of different, you know, things to you. But you're saying there's things you can do of course. that dial in. And, and, and we, we do. We do. Uh, 2015 was not an off year for us. Nor was it an off year for Lacouvier. Mm-hmm. You remember good, back that far? Yes, okay. of course. <laughs> there was something that uh, Justin Smith from Saxon said that I thought was really interesting, and I kind of wanted to ask yes. both of you on from one Ishka's perspective, a, a farming perspective, and then, of course, John from a winemaking perspective. And that is like, you know, he had this wine in 07, that was just huge. It was huge for Paso. It was huge for the brand Saxum. It was 100 points here, top wine here. I mean, it was just... A, and 07 was a great year for, for wines and Paso wines and California wines in particular as well. But that wine doesn't come out until, you know, 09 or 10. And by the time it's getting all this fanfare, he's like, well, shit, I... I'm actually on like a different program now. I'm like, I'm making my wines a little bit different. So how much when you are tasting your wines two and a half, three years later, sometimes even later than that, um, do you go, I've already kind of tweaked my lens a little bit and now, but man, that's tasting really good. I mean, shoot, you want to go back to your 98 program? Because this is pretty damn good, John. 
I made a mistake when I changed, huh? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> we'll talk in a couple other 20, 25, 30 years, and we'll see. But, but we opened in 1988. That red was an 88. Yeah, that was a uh, Syrah from 88. The, the Part of the, the shot, this uh, wine library holds about 1,000 bottles. And we'll put back down, we used to uh, put down at least four cases of each. Uh, Clay, how many no. uh, cases? 9,000. 8,000. 8,000. 8, 8, 8, but it holds 9,000. 9,000, yes. If we pack it. Sure. We have yeah. drunk 1,000 bottles. Uh, in that's yeah, yes, we're going to have 100 that's tonight. That's <laughs> but the, part of the point was I wanted to see how wines were doing. And before I built this place, uh, I had all these cases which were on pallets and stacked and whatnot. Yeah. I knew what I had, but I couldn't get at them. Yeah. <clears throat> the concept with this was being able to go back and do what we're doing today get together with winemakers and taste some older vintages and go back and revisit what was done in those vintages uh, try and um, sort of discuss what what was happening in the vineyard what was happening just with the year and what was happening with the so-called winemaking or the yeah. way the wine was supported and to start you don't get an idea especially with the kind of aging you don't really get an idea until time has passed yet for us it's a long period of time but in terms of the spectrum of what goes on in a vineyard and the spectrum of what happens with wines. Snapshot. It's a snapshot. So this helps us uh, look at it. It also gives us something to drink when we want to. How do you feel about the uh, the evolution of Paso? I mean, being one of, we talked about this, not only as one of the, the pioneers, old school uh, personalities, but this eccentric, philosophically driven kind of personality. I mean, there's more of you now. You've birthed some of them. I mean, Neil Collins and some you know others who have learned a lot from you and know a lot of you. Uh, what do you think about the way things have evolved? In Paso. Interesting. I think if I go back to when I first moved to this area, it would have been 77, 78 when I bought the property here. Uh, virtually everything except some of the old um, Italian based small wineries were uh, vineyards that had been developed for tax losses. And uh, the grapes would be then sold to, we used to call um, the, uh, it was owned by Coca-Cola, Monterey Vineyards or whatnot. They'd produce incredible quantities of wine and whatnot. So the grapes would go to them. And then people like uh, the Mondavis, the Kendall Jacksons, uh, et cetera, would come into this area and buy grapes for their second label or like Mondavi's Woodbridge and whatnot. And despite the way the grapes were grown uh, with just purely as a farming operation, they, they saw something was really special. So we started to see a transition. Initially, the sense was that you grow the grapes and they're all going to be the same. It's a winemaker and what would they use? And that the evolution has been from that to recognizing the great diversity, the plethora of different growing conditions within the Paso Robles Appalachian that results in wines and potentials that are just remarkable. You know, they just, it's just such a broad spectrum. So I've seen the biggest change I've seen is the recognition that Paso Robles is not an Appalachian. It's a conglomerate of these smaller Appalachians, each of which has its own personality. It then allows both the winemaker but the customer, the buyer, the wine drinker, to be able to come here and, and just say, well, I'm just going to stop at this one winery and fill up with the cheapest wine I get because they're all the same. Going from that mentality to, wow, I really like what Justin is doing out at the Justin thing. I really like what Pear Valley's doing. It's, it's that kind of thing that you get this incredible diversity. Do you think people think in terms of like names and brands or do you think people think in terms of, I mean, I remember we did a cork show in France, like the winemaker there is like not very important. Like they don't even talk about them. Yeah. Here, it's something that we revere. It's a position that we revere, which I thought was very interesting. Mm. Or do you think people will start to kind of go, oh, Willow Creek, oh, Templeton Gap. Will, will they start to think in those terms? I, I, I'm personally convinced that people already think in those terms. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of people that will go for the 
the hoopla and the show of a, of a fancy tasting room or this, that, and the other, and that kind of PR. And that's also very valid. You know, it's a marketing program. But when it gets to the people take the bottles home and they start to taste and they can taste in the uh, respective calm of their own kitchen and their own uh, uh, dining room with friends and whatnot, all of a sudden they start to say, oh, this is really different. And so a big change I've seen is going from by getting grapes that are coming from these vineyards like Ishka's. And for me, it was a dry farm vineyard. And that doesn't mean that the vineyards that are planted in areas that are typically irrigated can't produce or don't produce these uh, stellar, unique grapes. But you can taste and you can smell the difference year by year from this Zinfandel vineyard to that Zinfandel vineyard, etc. And what for me, the, the concept then is what's a complex wine is not necessarily a very big wine, but it's a multiplexing of all of these flavor components that give you this broad spectrum of flavors. For us, one of the reasons we pulled away, I used to use all new oak years ago, pulled away to just neutral oak is I want the vineyard to shine. And you get these uh, flavors that are just unique. The great day comes when you're tasting a wine that has been multiplexed like this. And you pour some in the glass and you're talking with friends and what you smell it. Then you go back and you taste it, smell it, and it's, it's changed. It's become a shape shifter. And each glass that you pour is a shape shifter. And then you can follow them in a room like this where they go, where they not only change through the evolution of time, but they continue the change in the glass. That and is that, a special bottle of wine, right? When you oh, can that's sit magic. with people at a table and you have a bottle and just watch the way it changes over an hour. Oh, oh. that's that's magical. That's, <laughs> Isn't it? it? That's really magical. And it and it can go through it in the same, the same each pour of the glass can go through that same evolution in the glass. Yeah. So it's really fun. And the, and the general notoriety of Pass Robles has enabled all boats to rise. So there is room... Are we Every, drinking? Uh, uh, right. uh, Speaking of 2011, yeah, that's Ishka's. Okay, is it all right? Uh, was this Ishka's first? Was this one of your your vineyards? Our first Grenache. It's our first Grenache. Our first Grenache. Right, right. Yes. Clay and, says in 2011, this is one of those years that even like critics pan 2011 uh, from Napa down. I think Paso just got kind of the brunt of what they were given the Napa. But uh, from what I've talked to, a lot of really good farmers and good winemakers in Paso have great things to show for 2011. Well, this is one of the first wines that we bottled vineyard designation as a Grenache because it is, it wasn't a big dark wine or whatnot, but it smells so much uh, like a, like a classic um, uh, French Grenache uh, from a good vineyard. I know Tablas Creek because they're really French bread and whatnot. Uh, Jason Haas at a tasting, tasted this wine, left, came back several times and he said, how did you guys do this? You know, because it was a vineyard. And we, when we looked at it and we were thinking about bottling it, there was something, oh, shouldn't we put some a petite Syrah on it to darken right. it up? Because, of course, no, right? No, because this vineyard was and, there. And I, yeah. I think he bought the last bottle, so there's plenty more to be purchased, so come back. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, I asked, the, that's, I asked, the life, that's the life of the farmer. You always pray. You got to put Yeah, it. well, I asked Sean Munch this aspect, and I'm kind of curious for you. I mean, obviously, um, Sri Lanka, is that right? I'm formerly from Sri Lanka, but I got my gravitas in New York. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's what I, when I talked to because, you know, you and I hadn't met before this, and which is crazy because you've been here so long, and I'm, I'm remiss to say that I haven't had the, the blessing to, to cross paths with you yet. So this made it very fun and very interesting for me. But one thing that everybody, especially when I was calling people talking about John Munch, and I would ask about you. And, um, and nobody knows me. No, they said, they, said, they said, if you're in a room, he's he's the one that has, he's, he's the most dapper. He's got the most style. It's really cool to uh, to, to finally be able to meet you. Right. Ishka, so no, uh, Ishka knows how to dress. I even wrote a song about his. Uh, yes, no, the his, most important. 
importantly, I know how to undress. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know who they likened you to? They said um, they likened you to uh, Josh uh, from Calera. <laughs> Uh, you, you know Josh uh, Why is his last name is How can the Claire's uh, Jensen Josh Jensen yeah. And he said yeah Because you know When he walks into a room I mean, He's got a style about him but That he, is just I watched him walk in One day he was wearing This cream colored White linen suit uh, Oh good god And, and I wish I, I'm built like a, An Irishman With uh, duck feet And I look at Ishka's body This beautiful body That can handle This clothes You know He can wear shoes That would They could be A pimp's shoes and Yeah yeah I can't sure. even get my foot into them. Right. So I wrote a song about his his Ishka's cream-colored white linen suit. I love no, it. That's because I'm uh, you're, you're being so gracious because I took the time to create a, a, a speech for your roast the, that day. Yeah, you buried me, if I recall. You're talking to me like I already died. Oh, the one at Teramia. That was great, yeah. That is awesome. I love it. So, I mean, are there certain wines or vintages, John, that maybe you look back and you go, yes, like that's, I'll hang my hat on that. Or maybe there's a, a blend, a certain kind of blend that La Cuvier calls a flagship? Uh, no, but I do remember vintages or varietals from a given vintage that really stand out in my mind. We have evolved being able to uh, determine our, our smell and survive based on our ability to taste and whatnot, but it's tied to the brainstem apparently. So it's a part that doesn't really uh, communicate verbally, but we have incredibly re- uh, accurate and refined ability to taste. You know, um, this mushroom, you eat this mushroom. It gets you off. You eat that one. It kills you. This one you can have for food. And the yeah. ones that make the mistake, Darwin takes care of sure. know, over time. Yeah. So we develop that. And if you have a wine that isn't obvious, it's not all raspberry or not all pepper, even if we're sitting there and friends having dinner and we're not sitting there making a big deal about the wine, your mind is constantly asking, what is it I'm tasting? I recognize this, but I can't identify I it. I love that. And that, to me, is where wine, I like to make the wine go. If I'm calling wine making, I like to blend in that direction. Yeah, that is really cool. It's that aspect of, what, what am I... You just keep going back to it. You get right on the cusp. I yeah. Just, I just made this up, by the way. That's right. almost like what you like about a good song, too, right? Yeah. Like the interpretation that the songwriter uses may make me think of this. Ishka may listen to the sure, same man. song and, and get this out of it. But isn't that kind of what's special well, about it, that? It is. And it's, it's the sort of things that uh, we all have that sort of thing. You smell this fresh mowed uh, lawn or something like yeah. that, a grass or something along those lines. And it'll spark memories of your your youth or a, a time in your life, etc. So wines are, I think, appealing because they have that ability to pull us out of our with the current world and to tie us to something uh, important from the past or even something, if you will, from a past life. You know, I'll just describe a wine. It's, I say this absolutely is like a North African bazaar in terms of the smells. Well, I've never been to North Africa, but I have that sense about the wine and people will appreciate that and understand what I'm talking about because they will also have the animal memory of past cycles of evolution, if you will. Mm-hmm. We do like certain smells, certain tastes, and it's not because of what I learned growing up in Panama it's, or in California. It's what I, my makeup has been through the, uh, through the eons, if you will. Right. And we have things that we, that we find very appealing I remember going and being in Milano in Italy in, in the wintertime, and I walk into where the Duomo is, uh, the cathedral, 
and walk into this, I can't remember what it's called, it's this beautiful big place, it's all these uh, vegetables and whatnot, just giant uh, market with the glass ceiling and the rest of it, and I walk in and I say, what is that stink? And then the next moment I say, oh my God, what is that smell? Yeah. And it was right? a, my first experience with truffles. Uh. And truffles smell like a pig in rut, you know, when you first smell them. And then all of a sudden you find this is real appealing. How do you, how do you find, where do you make that connection? Where does it become appealing? I think that has to, it's not a learned taste or learned smell. It's a... Acquired? A, it's, it's actually a, an evolutionary smell. Okay, okay, yeah. I think Jung called it the collective unconscious, you know, where you are able to, to sit there and you have uh, collective human memories, et cetera, that, y- that tie into that. And of course, now we're getting out into the woolly woolly, but don't well, that's where I wanted to go yeah. with you, duh. <laughs> it's been long enough. I'm, it's only taken me an hour to get there with you. But, but unbeknownst to him, he has created a legacy for the Paso in terms of someone who doesn't can't observe this. We are sitting in a room with 10,000 bottles of wine. It's getting bigger all the time, huh? Yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> from, from floor to ceiling. Right. It's a very cozy little room here. But the fact that there is so much ageability here. Yeah. We're talking about decades plus of wine. Yeah, 40 years and pretty much. Yeah. The banker's not very pleased. Right. <laughs> but but th- th- that is a testimonial to the ageability of wine. Yeah. I want to talk uh, about uh, Gaimar for a second, uh, Ishka. Yes, yes. When did you start? So you've been growing since the late 90s. And um, small production, Gaimar focuses on what and what? what is the message that you wanted to uh, uh, show in the expression of Paso with your grapes from Gaimar? Right. So uh, once I... Once I realized the pedigree of the vineyard and 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 patrons like uh, John Munch and Le Couvier being a big part of it, I was fortunate that, in my view, the great gentleman Steve Glosner was willing to sort of uh, impart his knowledge and craft a few wines uh, on my behalf, and uh, it's, it's a, it was a fledgling program, but gradually grew into something that's. Still to this day, extremely small, but it's uh, again, it's it's a, a program that really represents the the tenor of the vineyard. Yeah. Yes. Which is what? Which is a little bit of everything you grow, or everything I, I grow seven different varietals, but all head trained dry farm. We're talking about all the Rhone varietals, Zinfandel and Patitsura. I joke that I've had this vineyard for twenty five years. Generally speaking, a failing financial enterprise. <laughs> <laughs> the only way I could hoodwink my wife into letting me own a winery was to name it after her father. <laughs> <laughs> Although I must say the charm has faded. Either I need a new wife or a new gimmick. <laughs> Yes. I love it. And how, and how many wines do you, you make? Seven different wines at Guy Omar? Yes, in, a, in about a thousand cases. So we're, we're just very small, uh, and uh, it's more a hobby than a uh, than something that will put me over the moon, so to speak. Yeah, right. What is it you like about Ishka? What was it about? I mean, you're getting. More... I mean, the question is, what's not to like? Yeah. <laughs> what I like, what, what I like, are, are his clothes. I, I, his style, his style, and his clothes. I mean, if I could wear those clothes, oh man! Oh, if we all could. Good lord, huh? Yeah. yeah. This has been a lot of fun. Did you have fun in this conversation, John? Oh, not at all. No. Uh, no, no. It was a pleasure to meet you, and uh, and, and thank you very much for your courtesy. Yeah. It's 
it's it's fun to be asked questions and to revisit and also to pull myself out of just what we do here yeah and look at the industry as a whole and recognize that it is an industry and a lot of it is based like ishka says art and a lot of it is a business yeah and to being able to recognize that and that we all use these little oval roundish oval things called uh, grapes but that there are whole different levels and goals and enterprises that are involved with that little oval grape. John Munch, break it down with me and get emotional with me for a second. From Neil Collins to the countless people who have taken pieces of you that they've learned, maybe jokes with you, times of drinking with you, but they've taken a piece of you with them. And then to Clay right now in this room, that has got to feel really neat. Yeah, I guess in a, in a way it does. It's but it's feels like I, it's either lost on you a little bit or you're just too humble. I'm not. I'm not I've never been known for being humble. Uh, <laughs> and, and John doesn't have attachments. <laughs> okay, then maybe there you go. It's, he, yeah, he's an individual doesn't have attachments. Sure, uh, he has multiple friends who dote over him, who consider him to be uh, the inspiration. <laughs> Uh, I have a and, Ducati and, and, that I really like. Right. <laughs> yes, I know. You ride a bike? <laughs> Two of them. Wow. <laughs> no, it's, I think uh, when it comes down to, and I'm, I'm always amazed or bemused when I hear about things like the, the wine fairies or whatever they call them, it's, it's just believing that that things can take care of themselves and the greatest expression comes out of just getting out of the way. If there's anything that I feel good about instilling or promoting or pushing is just don't take it so seriously. Recognize that it is a collaborative process and you can either force a wine to go into a certain direction or you can let the wine be itself. The Ishka Grenache that we were tasting, it's just that is letting those grapes and that wine Mm. become itself and... I remember Clay and I talking about it down tasting from the barrel. There's nothing we could do other than screw it up. So we just had to just get it into the bottle on its own and recognize that there was something very special going on there. And that to sit there with a marketing program that says you have to have this much of this, that or the other, that is stunting. You know, you'd really just need to do the wines and then tell your partner, by the way, <laughs> this, this is what you have to work with. This right. <laughs> well, this has been a, a pleasure to chat with you. And I feel like this is a conversation with both you gentlemen could go a lot longer. And I'd hope you'd be willing to have me back sometime again. Sure. We have more to drink. Yeah. <laughs> Did you have fun, Ishka? Thank Yes, most certainly. And thank you very much. Uh, this is my first opportunity to be recorded. And, uh, of course, in the presence of uh, genius. Oh, and, geez. Uh, <laughs> the late great John Lunch, Clay says. That was from the roast. Oh, that was from the roast? I love it. That's good. I've been, from try- the- I've been trying to kill him off for the longest time. But, uh, <laughs> well, but, he's, your- but he, he's so pickled that he won't. Yeah. <laughs> and, John, I hope you had a lot of fun in this yes. conversation. It means a lot to, because, I mean, someone um, with the, the, the history that both of you have, and you both have been doing your thing here, I mean, you since like... 70s, early 80s, and then late 90s here with the growing with Ishka. I mean, like a lot of Paso and its um, ability to express world-class grapes and do what it does are because of uh, farmers and winemakers and personalities and philosophers and minds and geniuses and music lovers like the two of you. So, And viva! (laughs) 
Robles. Viva La Paso Robles. Yes. Shall we do it in unison? Yeah, go ahead. El Paso de Robles. No, no, Viva. 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 El Paso de Robles. Paso Robles. Yeah, I love it. Cheers, gentlemen. Yes. Ishka, John Munch yes. in the yes. house, in the library. I don't have wine, so I won't cheers. Oh, let's, let's, put, let's change that thing. <laughs> okay. Let's put some wine in there. I'll get more. You must also take this opportunity to, to uh, let the audience know about your uh, literary skills and your book. You must... Uh, Yes. Talk about the novel. Right. It's about a randy cockroach that lives in a Panamanian brothel. Where did this come from? This crazy mind of yours. This well, is amazing. And is the book still available? Can we get oh, it? Absolutely. The, it's, it's just a great roach race, and it covers about 100 years. Uh, no, there's no point of view, a single point of view. It's, it's uh, the same scenes being viewed by different people at different time so you get uh, it, it may be detrimental to the wine program because it's so it's eccentric in its uh, yeah. uh, uh, character and and content uh, so uh, it's not good for the mind to read it <laughs> i can't wait to read it wasn't it wasn't your um correct me if i'm wrong did i hear correctly that your past wife was the image of the old adelaida yep. labels those the, iconic yes, labels yes. the f- uh, fellow that i said that we were visiting from the south of france as english artist was the impetus if you will for us to come to paso uh he had uh, done drawings of her when we were all in the, living in the south of france yeah. and one of the pieces that he did was her looking around herself and so that was in, done in that, that method. I have the original piece at home. Wow. He also did this picture or this carving out of the stone from Le Beau in France, mm-hmm. which is obviously a woman, but she has one breast on the front and one breast on the back. So you can't really mm-hmm. you know, take him too seriously. Yeah, right. It's a little bit abstract, but yeah. it's interesting. It's, the, the, the two breasts are very nice, though. Yes. <laughs> or, or, or three for that matter. Three would work, yes, too. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no one's judging. Let's do it. More than merrier, right. Wow. So, what did we learn about? We learned about Munch Fairies. We learned about the Great Roach Race uh, just a few minutes ago. We learned about philosophy. We learned about singing. Coconuts. 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 And and his penchant for uh, driving and riding fast. Yes. On the motorcycle. Motorcycle, yes. He has has a death wish on a motorcycle. And that the wines will actually change (laughs) during harvest. The pre-existing grapes will react to the harvest. And to the music. And to the music, which I thought was fantastic. And to the way that the people around the, uh, the the process, right. the fermentation, and, and, and the their body, attitudes. The body odor of the individual, yes. Yeah. <laughs> well, this is a perfect time, Ishka. Many thanks to your... Thank you. For a candid conversation. John Munch, once again. Cheers, thanks guys. for sharing where wine takes you. Cheers. Cheers. Cheers to the ability to reunite once again in the, the near future and have another... Within a swirl of bullshit. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Amen. 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 Wow. So much thanks to John Munch and Ishka. Great conversations. Love both those guys. Check out those Guyamar wines, too. And those wines from Le Cuvier. Next time you're around Paso, especially if you're like us and believe in the personality coming through the wines, and you need these wines. Now, to a new little nugget we're calling the Travel Paso Spotlight with our friends from Travel Paso. Another great resource 
to check out before your next trip. Travelpaso.com has everything from accommodations, restaurants, and everything in between. You can also link to them when you're on our website, PasoWine.com, putting together your next trip to Paso Wine Country. Today, we're checking out a place I have actually waited to visit for the first time for this, the Paso Market Walk. I've heard a ton about it. It's done like like a European shopping market with lots of vendors and things to check out. All the businesses are separate entities, but you got food, drink, indoors, outdoors, plants, this, that, stuff for gifts, great stop if you're visiting. Maybe you need a few things. I got a chance to meet Jill Alexander, who runs the day-to-day show there, and she was sweet enough to take me on a little tour of the grounds. Here's a little bit of our conversation. Bye. What I love about it is just you walk in, it's this kind of open air feeling. We're walking around. It's like there's this vendor, there's that vendor. There are different kinds of vendors. Yes. You really have something for everyone here. Yes, we really love to say that. We are so excited that it's finally open. And, you know, we've been open for almost a year, August 1st. And we see a lot of hope. We see a lot of people coming out and really wanting to eat out more and stay in the lofts. It's been really exciting. We're, we're just super, super excited to have you out. I'm curious where the inspiration was for something like this because I have haven't seen anything like this. Like I walk in, it's like, oh, over there we got my boy Leo Leo Gelato, and and right here this long aisle. It looks like wine merchant. And then where did where did you guys come up with this? Well, the owner Deborah Mann, she is a world traveler. She did really great in her career with Justin, and it was her dream to build a mixed use project. We leased all these pods out to people that we thought were super quality local people, and everybody has just been a really great addition to Paso Market Walk. They really have something to offer for everybody. Now, I think one of the crown jewels, the cherry on this cake, it's literally on top of everything, are the lofts. You have six rooms, two studios, two one-bedrooms, two two-bedrooms, and literally you could stay right center Paso, have all these things right here, and just get it done. Yeah, those were really fun to build, and they were even a lot more fun to design. Uh, Debbie and I took over the whole project, and they're very modern. Uh, They're a little industrial, but they're also super cozy. We have the best mattresses you'll ever sleep on, and we are dog-friendly. These are going pretty good for the uh, Paso Market Walk. Yes, they are. We're excited. Come on out. Um, Take a look. If you haven't been here yet, you're missing out. Good for you guys. Uh, You know, give my love to Deborah. You guys have just killed it with this, and I can't wait to spend some more time here. Check out those logs. Yeah, check out Paso Wine Merchant. They do boutique wines. I have been hearing so much about these people. People will not shut up about Paso Wine Merchant. They must be killing it. They're a great couple. We're so happy to have them here and part of Paso Market Walk. They're just doing great. Everybody's talking about them. Okay, so a lot to check out. you got to go to PasoMarketWalk.com. PasoMarketWalk.com. And if you want to take a look at the lofts, the lofts at themarket.com. You guys literally got it all. Good job, Jill. Yep. Thank you for coming out. Thanks a bunch to Jill again from Paso Market Walk. Check out those lofts and check out that Paso Wine Merchant. You know, everyone in town has just been talking about uh, their industry night, July 14th. I'm planning on being out there to say hi to folks. I know my friends at Epic Estate Wines will be out there, including Jordan Fiorentini, my winemaker crush, among more folks. So I'm excited. But if you're in town, July 14th, we'd love to see you at the Paso Wine Merchant. They're doing their thing from five to seven. But check out the Paso Market Walk and the Paso Wine Merchant, those lofts. Next time you are out and about in Paso and check out TravelPaso.com. You can link up to uh, more of what they got in store and you can always link to them on our website too, PasoWine.com. Wow. Stacked show, huh? This was fun. 
I'm super thankful you're with us. We have more great shows that we are working hard on behind the scenes. Lots going on in Paso. The Mid-State Fair is a huge thing. I'll be doing my thing with the Cork Dorks there every day at the California Mid-State Fair from that Mission Square area. So one way or another, we'd love to meet you, connect with you over the summer here in Paso Wine Country. You can also follow me on Instagram at Adam on the Air and get some uh, behind the scenes from the show here. Where Wine Takes You is executive produced by Joel Peterson of Paso Wine, associate producer Jen Bravo. Where Wine Takes You is recorded, edited, and produced by yours truly. I'm your host, Adam Montiel. Next time you're cruising the Central Coast, don't forget you can tune me in on your radio. My morning show, weekday mornings, up in Adam in the morning on Coast 104.5. You could stream it as well. And the wine stuff, Wine Country Radio, and the Cork Dorks, heard on The Crush 92.5. And you could stream The Crush at Crush with a K, Crush925.com. Well, till next time, I hope you continue to enjoy your summer, enjoy some Paso wine in your glass, and never stop enjoying where wine takes you. And give me that passion, we'll get by, we can pass on down till the job is Camp out in the trees, it will simplify and work come. Give me that moonshine, we'll get by, we can pass on down till the job is Camp out in the trees, it will simplify and work come. Give me that moonshine, we'll get by, we can pass on down till the job is out in the trees, we will simplify in good company. When that moonshine will get by, we pass on round till the job is dry. Camped out in the trees, we will simplify in good company.